And thanks everyone for, for having me. Uh, I am a, a former 10 o'clocker and moved to five o'clock a number of years ago. So it's nice to, nice to be here among you and, and with some, some familiar faces too. So thanks for that. Uh, some of you people here will, will remember the author and journalist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, sadly died a few years ago of cancer. Uh, but up until that point, in fact, right up to the point of his death, he was one of the most prominent kind of evangelistic atheists in the world. And he, Christopher Hitchens saw it as his mission to write and speak against religion in general, and I reckon because this was his experience of Christianity in particular. Um, funnily enough, I've interviewed Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter, a couple of times. Now, Peter Hitchens is a very, once, was once a, an atheist like, his, like Christopher, but is these days a very committed Christian. So you can imagine the kind of family dynamics going on there. Uh, but I, I liked Christopher Hitchens. I enjoyed his writing. He, he led a, a really interesting life and he wrote about it beautifully. So in a sense, I miss Christopher Hitchens. Uh, but I am, as Scott said, from the Centre for Public Christianity. So it's not a secret that we see the world very differently. When Christopher Hitchens wrote his book on religion, he called it God is Not Great. Um, he wrote this very early in the, in the book. Uh, is this bumping a bit? It's okay. Religion, he says, has caused innumerable people not just to conduct themselves no better than others, but to award themselves permission to behave in ways that would make a brothel keeper or an ethnic cleanser to, write, to raise an eyebrow. He's got a bit of a flourish there. Uh, in Belfast, I've seen whole streets burned out by sectarian warfare between different sects of Christianity and interviewed people with, whose relatives and friends have been kidnapped or killed or tortured by rival religious death squads, often for no other reason than for belonging to, a different, to another confession. And then this... As I write these words, and as you read them, people of faith are in their different ways planning your and my destruction. And the destruction of all hard-won human attainments that I've touched upon, religion poisons everything. And when Christopher Hitchens says everything, he means everything. He really thinks without religion we would be a lot better off, and it's kind of unrelentingly a negative force. Christopher Hitchens is not alone in this. There's more and more people today for whom this is kind of a sentiment they'll repeat. Uh, on ABC's Q&A program a few years ago, they did a survey of, of the audience, not, sorry, not just the audience, the, the TV audience, and asked people to respond to the question, would we be better off without religion? And 20,000 people responded. That's a huge number for this kind of survey. And 70% of people said, yes, we would. We'd be better off without religion. Uh, other polls similarly have reflected you know, sort, that sort of thing. Ipsos did a poll a couple of years ago. 63% of Australians believe that religion does more harm than good. It's a live question for people today. Has Christianity, as the undeniably profoundly shaping force that it's been across the world. Been a force for good. Has it been good? The truth is, not always. Would we be better off without it? 
It's a, it's a question for people today. So as, as Scott mentioned, at the Centre for Public Christianity, we've spent a couple of years making a documentary titled For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And it is looking at this impact of Christianity on the West particularly, but on the world generally, the good and the bad. Now, some of you, I believe, were here on Wednesday night and saw the cinema version of this, which is uh, an hour and a half. There's a lot more material you'll maybe be glad to know of. Um, four 50-minute episodes, but it's available in a whole lot of different formats, and I hope, hope you'll get some use out of that, even if you came the other night and saw it. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's set up to sort of suit lots of different environments, including small groups. Now, the reason we did this is, is simply this. Every time we did anything in the, in the main, mainstream media, wrote an article, had something on the radio, or whatever it might have been, someone would write in and say, yeah, yeah, great. But what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? And the support of slavery and the oppression of women and the hoarding of wealth. And this was on and on it would go. And there was a long list of complaints. And what we had to recognize was it was a valid list of complaints. There have been some dreadful chapters in Christian history. And so today, and we're going to be thinking about some of these, the good and the bad chapters of Christian history across the next three weeks. And today... We're going to consider particularly the question of religion and violence and, of course, Christianity's place in that story. Is the Christian faith, as lots of people will tell you it is, a cause of human conflict and division and therefore something we might do better off without? Uh, And We will be using uh, some of the material in the documentary to, to illustrate that and we'll be playing a few clips here today. So we tell some horrible stories in the documentary of Christians behaving badly. One episode, which we kick off the whole project with, was the, Crusades, uh, the Crusader armies arriving in Jerusalem in 1099 and how they dealt with what was going on there. Now the Crusades were, of course, uh, wars involving European Christians travelling over to the Holy Land in response from a, to a call from the Pope to, to get across there and reclaim territory that had been overrun by Muslim armies. That's the sort of the politics of it. And they arrive in 1099 into Jerusalem, and this is what happens. Jerusalem, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on earth home to three great religions, the so-called City of Peace. In the blistering heat of July 15th, 1099, 10,000 European crusaders broke through Jerusalem's walls and fought their way up to one of Islam's most sacred sites, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Thousands barricaded themselves in up here and sought refuge in the mosque. Some even climbed the roof of the mosque to escape. But the crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women and children. Some they threw off the high walls to their deaths. The rest they butchered. 
the carnage apparently filled this great promenade. When the fighting was done, the pilgrims, as they like to call themselves, marched 500 meters that way to the ancient Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they held a thanksgiving service. The irony is scorching. Near this church a millennium earlier, Jesus of Nazareth gave up his life on a Roman cross. How could Christians celebrate a massacre in his name? It's not, it's not great, is it? Uh, there are, there are lots more examples of that kind of thing, unless you be tempted to say, well, that, yeah, that was a Roman Catholic problem, and the Protestants were like this. Uh, the history doesn't really help us with that. Um, and, 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 and by way of, of illustration, even two of the great heroes of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Luther, of course, was responsible from 1517 of a critique of the church that, that leads to the Reformation, and he also, uh, in his spare time, translated the Bible into German, which had enormous impact in, in a whole lot of different ways. Luther wrote some shocking, awful things about Jewish people that we really wish he hadn't done. And we'd like to sort of scrub that out, but it's something we've got to face. Uh, John Calvin is a brilliant man, perhaps understood Christianity more than just about anyone else, also was responsible for approving the execution of Michael Sevetus, who was someone who believed strange things about the Trinity, approved the brutal execution of this man because he believed something a bit odd about the Trinity, which, as a friend of mine says, is every second Christian these days. Uh, here was someone who we kind of can't, it's hard to match up against the things that we might want to believe about someone like that. Christian history is just, it really is a mixed bag all the way through. Now, lots of Christians will want to say at this point, it's not all that surprising, actually. Because Christianity is, after all, the religion of people who fully front up every week to say, we are, we are not perfect all the way through. In fact, we're fallen, broken people in need of forgiveness and redemption. We're what the British writer Francis Spufford called the League of the Guilty. I mean, this is us today. We're the league of the guilty. We turn up and confess our sins. So at one level, it's not surprising to a Christian, if not a bit disappointing. But there are things that Christians are rightly ashamed of in our history that we need to lament about these things and perhaps repent over them. And I think that's a very important concession that we'd want to make straight up uh, when we're talking about Christian history. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is we'd also want some clarification. There are some misconceptions about Christian history that you hear all the time at uh, water coolers and on the bus and if you go to dinner parties, dinner parties, where people say things like, oh, religion causes all the wars. And you want to say, oh, oh does it? But it's actually demonstrably false. People will nod sagely when you say things like that. Religion causes all the wars. But it really is worth challenging. It's, not, it's just not true. And you might think of something like the Spanish Inquisition. Famously awful for executing people for incorrect beliefs. And it's rightly thought of as a terrible chapter of Christian history. I'm going to say something clarifying about that in a moment. But here's a little taste of a sort of an introduction to 
the Inquisition. In any list of the greatest evils committed by the church through the ages, Inquisition generally comes right after Crusades, and with good reason. Inquisitions were trials for heresy run by church or state-appointed inquisitors. When it first started, Inquisition was uh, better described as inquisitorial procedure. It's, uh, it's a way of proceeding in a criminal case in which the judge is also the investigator. It wasn't really very suitable for a heresy because uh, in order to be prosecuted, a crime had to be public. Uh, a judge could not bring a case against somebody unless the general community singled out this person and said that he was guilty. And uh, with heresy, You've got, uh, this is a very private thing, this is uh, uh, private thoughts and so on, and so it's hard to prove. And so the heresy inquisitors started violating due process fairly early on by interrogating uh, witnesses to testify against themselves. When people think about inquisitions, Usually they're thinking about the Spanish Inquisition, which terrorised people from Spain to Mexico for 350 years. The whole thing started as a way of dealing with the supposed problem of conversos, or Jewish converts to Christianity. The converso community was wealthy and powerful. They held prominent positions in finance and government, so you can imagine they were resented by a lot of people, including the clergy. The Inquisition came from a rising groundswell of fear and suspicion. Were these people really Christian? Or were they pretending to be Christian, but actually secretly Jewish? The Spanish Inquisition was established in 1478 here in the town of Seville. And from the beginning, it relied heavily on the ill will of neighbours. Many of the conversos had never been Jewish. It was their parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents that had converted to Christianity. But even for those who had been Jewish, many of the charges against them were simply ludicrous. People testified that they'd seen a Jewish object in someone's house 30 years ago. One elderly woman said she'd heard her neighbour utter a Jewish phrase 50 years ago. It was crazy stuff. If they confessed straight away, conversos could often make a cash payment to the inquisitors and get their slate wiped clean. The Spanish Inquisition was a state institution, and one of the great suspicions about the Spanish Inquisition, which we don't seem to see about medieval inquisitions, is that inquisitors generated accusations. That is, they wanted to find people that they could suspect, people who would be guilty, for the very purpose of sustaining the institution. That's just the opening part to the Inquisition. You can go and check that out if you'd like to. I have to apologise, you're going to see me here as well as up there a bit today, so you know, hopefully not too much of me. Uh, but it's fair to say that in the popular imagination, the Inquisition has taken on a size and a scale that really outweighs the reality. 
And I think it is worth clarifying that. I've read in this city, in a major newspaper by a well, very well-credentialed journalist, of the millions of people killed by the Spanish Inquisition. The millions of people. Now, the experts in this field will tell us that over a 350-year period, there are about 6,000 people killed, uh, which is about 18 people a year, which is not great. It's awful. One would have been terrible. But it's true to say it's nothing like what people imagine to have been the case. And I think it's worth pointing out those sorts of clarifying issues when we're talking about the history. We want to get it right. Christians should concede things that are are true, but don't concede things they don't need to. Uh, And another thing about these stories is that they are always more complex than they appear on the surface. Classic example of that, and a fairly modern one, is the Troubles from no- of Northern Ireland, which is these days thought of as a very typical example of the way religion just causes all this conflict, and Christianity especially, and it's sort of an inevitable thing when people take their faith seriously that they're going to be in divisive and sometimes very violent situations. Uh, a closer look reveals something very different. I think Northern, the, the struggles and the troubles of Northern Ireland uh, represent that, illustrate that very well. Let's have a quick look at that too. Pay attention to the taxi driver's accent, it's difficult. You can work with it though. The question of religious violence hasn't gone away. This is Belfast, Northern Ireland, the scene of some truly ugly clashes between Catholics and Protestants. Often cited as evidence that Christianity inevitably causes division and bloodshed. But it's complicated. The period known as the Troubles began in 1968 and lasted for 30 years. On one side of the equation were the Unionists, also known as Loyalists, the Protestants. They were mostly of British descent and wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of Britain. On the other side were the Nationalists, or Republicans, the Catholics. Their stated goal was to join the Republic of Ireland, which had won its independence in 1921. Jim lived through it, and now takes tourists around significant sites. So you would have been a young man in the I was a young man, well, yes, I, well, 1961 I was born, so I was eight years of age, just coming into the start of the conflict, uh, and that was it. You, so you, grew, you, up you grew up very quickly. Yeah. yeah, I always say it was in 1997, it was the first time in my life I've ever seen peace. And so that really dominated Oh life. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. When I used to get up out of bed in the mornings, my first thought was, how do we avoid being murdered by the murder gangs, okay? Mm-hmm. Also, how do we avoid the British Army from the harassments and stuff like that? And also, how do we attack the British Army? <laughs> but the change being today, when my kids get out of bed in the morning and say, okay, we'll have to go to work to get our mortgage paid. Mm-hmm. You see the change? Yeah. It's, It's fair to say that religious identity has been caught up in the struggle. So how do people who claim a Christian faith reconcile what happened here with what they believe? I'm often asked, how is it possible to be a person who was born and lived in Northern Ireland and still remain committed to the Christian faith? Because I grew up in a situation where my parents lived in a town that was divided 
and my parents who were Christian but were not sectarian believed that every man and woman is made in the image of God no matter what they believe. So he put that into practice by employing equally across the Protestant-Catholic divide. And we were bombed because of that. So I have some experience of this kind of thing. And my reaction to it is quite simple and very direct. I'm utterly ashamed of it. I'm ashamed that the name of Christ has ever been associated with a bomb or an AK-47. For the simple reason that people who do that are not following Christ. They are disobeying him. I always said religion was used too readily to cover this conflict. Because if we think about it here, you're not saying one thing about anything religious here. You see that? There is no crosses in that wall. There's no other stuff like that. This is about a war of independence. In 1979, the Pope gets down on his knees here and he says, please, please stop the violence. Yeah. It continued on, okay? Also remember the Queen of England on many, many occasions she appealed to the Protestant paramilitaries, the loyalist paramilitaries to stop murdering people again. They didn't listen. So religion was never taken on board by these paramilitary leaders, do you understand? They never ever stopped to think murders more than sin, as we say in the church. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. The troubles came to an end on Good Friday 1998, when the key parties reached a peace agreement after 30 years of conflict. However, security walls, euphemistically called peace lines, still separate key Catholic and Protestant neighbourhoods. Often conflicts that we think of as religious turn out to be, when we look more closely, about much more than just people's spiritual beliefs. But there's no question that religion, when used as an identity marker, can be a potent force in ramping up an us-versus-them mentality. There are plenty. Yeah, it's a complex story, that one. But the more we talk to people uh, who were involved in the struggle, the more they would say, look, we weren't going to church on, Saturday, on Sunday. Uh, that this was not about religion. It was a very much a tribal struggle even though religion kind of gets used and it can kind of give it a, uh, a boost in terms of what it, it does in terms of div- setting up the conflict. Interesting little side note with that taxi driver, Jim. Um, we did consider subtitles there, but hopefully you got the gist of it. Um, he said to me right at the end of this drive that uh, when he was 13 years old, he was shot by a British soldier twice, once through the back, once through his arm, and it's kind of crippled his arm for the rest of his life. And he said that for, for almost his whole life since, if, if you were to ask him, he would say, oh, if I saw that person again, I'd want to put them in the ground. You know, this is long, bitter kind of response to, understandable response to that action. But then he said, you know, I don't feel like that anymore. I've changed my attitude to this. And the reason is because I've come to understand that this soldier like me was put in a position that he didn't choose, just sort of he was a subject to that. And he recognised that that soldier was probably scared and with some good reason and, you know, just responded in a way that he thought suitable at the time. And so he softened a bit on that. And I said to him, oh, would you you ever contemplate forgiveness? He said, (laughs) no, that was too much. But, you know, you never know. We might get there one day. This is a complex story. It's, It's not accurate to just 
painted as a straight-out religious conflict. I think that's de- that, that would be deeply to misunderstood the, the history. So we want to concede some things. We want to clarify some things. But then we want to look at what's the solution? What is the solution to bigoted, nationalistic, violent Christians that we can identify across the centuries? What's the solution to that? Well, the answer... I would want to give is we want more Christianity, not less. We want people being more Christian, calling Christians to be more Christian, not less. And sometimes people from outside the faith are good at identifying this. Albert Einstein, writing during World War I, wrote these words which I think are really relevant for us. He says, But why so many words when I can say it in a sentence? And in a sentence very appropriate for a Jew. Honour your master, Jesus Christ, not only in words and songs, but rather foremost in your deeds. Honour your master, not just in words and song, but in your deeds. More Christianity, not less. Christians getting back to the Bible and being directed by that, we would argue, is going to make the world a better place. And so we, we in this a documentary project, we wanted to keep driving people, pointing people back to the founder of the faith to see what's there, see what we see when we do that. And in the documentary, we employ a metaphor to try to illustrate this. This is uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the all-time great composers, and we use this metaphor of a piece of music, a, pe- a beautiful piece of music. Let's have a little listen to to one of his famous pieces. It's beautiful, isn't it? Nice for a Sunday morning. When you, when you hear that played, even if you're not a kind of classical music person, you, you kind of, it's, it's stunning, don't you think? And uh, in, our, in our sort of way of trying to illustrate this, we make the point that were you to hear me or Scott Petty try to have a crack at playing this uh, piece, you might be tempted to think that Bach didn't know what he was doing and he was a bit of a hack and, it was a bit of a, and, and he, he was uh, completely ill-equipped to, to uh, show us something beautiful. But the thing is, you of course know to distinguish between the composition and its performance. You do that, you do that all the time. And we argue that you should judge the tune of Jesus on its best performance, not on its worst. Judge it on its best, not its worst performance. Well, what is the tune of Jesus? What does that sound like? Well, it sounds something like this from the Gospel of Luke. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And then crucially, do to others as you would have them do to you. 
do to others as you would have them do to you. The, this is the incredible thing about Jesus is that he not only talks about this, but he lives it out in the most astonishing way. According to the New Testament, Jesus loves his enemies all the way to a brutal death on the cross, that he goes to willingly the most humiliating, violent, cruel death so that others can be in relationship with God. And so this act of Jesus opens up all sorts of possibilities of redemption and restoration of broken things. This is the heart of the Christian story. All the things that have been broken by human foolishness and fallibility, our own as well as the people around us. And you remember that later in Luke's gospel, he records Jesus praying from the cross for the people who are doing this thing to him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Love for enemies. I mean, this is love for enemies acted out in a very powerful way. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were a long way from him. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Love your enemies. This is the kind of love Jesus exhibits and he calls on his followers to emulate. And I want to argue that there is nothing like this anywhere else. Uh, It's a very distinctive thing about Christianity. Um, Do unto others as as you would have them do unto you. I hear people all the time say, oh yeah, all all the religions say that, the golden rule, do unto others. We we like the sound of that. And it's pretty common to every religion. It's actually not true. About the closest you get is Confucius who says this. It's sort of the negative version of that. Do not inflict on others what you would not wish done to you. Okay, so don't do that if you don't want it done to you. And then you've got, on the other hand, do to others as you would have them do to you. My friend says, the difference between those two things is like this. On the one hand, I'm not going to punch you in the face. On the other hand, I'm going to build a hospital to care for you and your family. And I'm going to do that indiscriminately. I don't know who you are, whether whether you're a Christian or not. We're going to do this for you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's not the silver rule, it's the golden rule. And right from the beginning of the story of Christianity, there were Christians who took this teaching seriously and it changed the world with stunning results. Sometimes people say to me, oh yeah, but, and you read things about this, the violence of the cross. There's critics who say the violence of the cross speaks of something inherently violent. In Christianity, there's a sort of a violent act associated with that, and that flows from it. But the thing is, and this is the crucial thing that people miss this violence is, according to the Christian story, turned inwards on itself. So God takes on this, the violence. It's the story where God is both the victim and the hero all at the one time. It's an incredible thought. 
And it's this that makes sense of the call to lay down your life in the service of other people. To shun violence and hatred and retribution. And I would argue that it's only because of the cross and the resurrection that those things make much sense. And they do, though, in light of the cross and the resurrection. And there are undeniably some extraordinary examples of the tune of Jesus being played beautifully that makes a profound difference in the lives, not only of some individual people, but of whole cultures. It contributes to enormous change. We're going to explore, in the next couple of weeks, we'll explore some of those big kind of culture-shifting changes. But of course, you remember that sometimes those small acts of beautiful service where some of us have experienced those ourselves right here in this community. And may there be more of that. We started talking today about people claiming to be followers of Christ, acting in the most brutally violent ways. But taking the the, the tune of Jesus seriously has led Christians, sometimes, to contribute to a peaceful world in really profound ways and sometimes in the most difficult of circumstances. And we thought a great example of this was that of Martin Luther King Jr. and his campaign of non-violent resistance in the struggle for to gain civil rights for African Americans in the 50s and 60s in America. And our focus here is on the way his faith informed everything that he did in that struggle. I always like to remind people that this non-violent resistance, this program, was not just about kind of becoming a meek doormat to be crushed by other people. In fact, it was courageously going out and confronting evil in order to bring it into the light. Martin Luther King and his team used to go to the most violent parts of America, the most racist parts of America, in order to draw out and and sort of absorb in themselves the most hateful, violent, bigoted people in order to show on which side justice lay. And King made a a point of this by saying early on that non-violence is a powerful and just weapon. It's a weapon, he says, that's unique in history because it cuts without wounding, love that phrase, and ennobles the man who wields it. It's a sword that heals. It was very much about not objectifying the enemy and demonizing them, but somehow finding a way to love them. I'm just going to show you a bit of a clip uh, that we, uh, that we uh, look at King. I mean, there's a lot more of this, but let's see the first bit of that. Jesus gave the world a new tune when it came to enemies. Bump the volume up a bit. Relinquish violence in favour of love. Someone who truly embodied that radical teaching to great effect was a Baptist preacher from America's South. He led the fight for civil rights for African Americans from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., King delivered a piece of rhetorical brilliance that became a high point of the civil rights movement. 
under the gaze of one great emancipator, he would unfold his vision of another social revolution. 250,000 people gathered here for the March on Washington, a massive rally to demand civil and economic rights for African Americans. It was late in the day and King stepped up to the microphone and delivered his unforgettable I Have a Dream speech. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Littered through the speech were allusions to Shakespeare, famous folk songs, the Declaration of Independence, and especially the Bible. Have a listen to this. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. That's straight out of the book of Isaiah. And what about this from the prophet Amos? We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. King wasn't just a great orator. His whole approach to the battle for civil rights was shaped by his faith and his understanding of the profound ethic of love at its centre. Martin Luther King uh, was able to apply the Christian notion of love and connect it to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance in a very powerful way. The idea that you can resist a system but still love individuals um, and treat them with respect and honor. The idea that evil must be resisted, it should never be normalized. Um, and the idea that, you know, mass. Uh, nonviolent action can be a force for powerful change um, is a set of principles and a message that I think will endure the, the test of time. King began his journey into the leadership of the civil rights movement here at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was thrust, reluctantly at first, into the limelight as a key leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. For several weeks now, we, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, have been involved in a non-violent protest against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on the buses for a number of years. This is a non-violent protest. We are depending on moral and spiritual forces using the method of passive resistance. One night when the Montgomery bus boycott had gotten started, uh, he received a uh, telephone call from someone who said that he was going to be killed, his family was going to be killed, his house was going to be bombed. You know, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, he just sat down at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and said a prayer, which basically was, Lord, I'm down here trying to do good, but I'm losing my courage. And uh, he said he heard a voice speaking to him, saying, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, stand up for what's right, stand up for justice, and I will never abandon you, I will never leave you, I'll never leave you alone, I'll never leave you alone. And for King, that kitchen table experience became for him the rock-solid basis for his activism, even though he knew uh, as his life went on and on that he was not going to die in bed. He knew he wasn't going to die in bed, but that was an epiphany that he had, that King had, that really changed everything for him and gave him the resolve, I think, to, to carry on with this 
with this program. It was good to tell those sorts of stories because I think it sort of opens up for us some of some of the best moments of the moments of Christianity at its best. And, and one of the one of the um, parts of that story that I found very particularly sort of personally impacting was when we went to uh, Montgomery to Alabama to see the house where King lived in uh, when, that, when he started the struggle and was at the, ba- at the church down the road there. And as, as Albert Roberto was explaining that epiphany, uh, it was only a couple of nights after that that houses, the house that King lived in was firebombed and the front of the house was sort of blown off and his wife and daughter were inside. Now, thankfully, they were down the back of the house and they were okay, so they survived this. But he had to rush up from the church. And you can just imagine, he's, he's had this sort of moment, but here is the violence that's arrived literally on his doorstep. And so it's a key, early on in the struggle, it's a key, how are we going to respond to this? And all, a lot of his supporters came to, to, to the house that afternoon and into the early evening. And they were, they were ready for revenge. So a whole lot of them came, they were packed out on the front lawn there of the house that you can see, and they'd armed themselves sometimes with shovels and sticks and things, but they were ready to go. And they want to go and find who's this person that's responsible for attacking our leader in this way. It's a pretty natural reaction, actually. I think it's an entirely human, understandable response. They want to support him. They want to find out who's responsible. And so King has got this testing moment. What's he going to do? Well, they wait, and then he comes out onto the front step of the house, And they're waiting for it. And this is what he says. He says, you know what, everyone? I want you to go home. We are not going to do this in this way. We're not responding to violence with violence. We're going to do it in the way of Jesus. And then he said, I want you to go and love your white brothers no matter what. Love your white brothers, no matter what. Remembering that their white brothers were responsible for an awful lot of violence that was going on, sometimes killing people who were in this struggle. People lost their lives in this struggle. Go and love your white brothers, no matter what. This is love of enemy in, you know, writ large. Pray for the people who persecute you. Now, I found that quite shocking and moving and personally affecting. I don't think many of us can live like that. I know we find it hard, don't you? I do, to find it hard to forgive people who are responsible for some minor offence. Let alone these sort of grand acts of, of violence. But I do think, though, that when any of us see this kind of behaviour, we all recognise, irrespective of our belief, actually, we recognise that we're seeing something that's true and good and beautiful. This is playing in tune with Jesus in a way that I think everyone can be glad of. And I wonder what you make of these kinds of lives. I think they do give us a glimpse of Christianity at its best and its commitment to radical love, selfless, sacrificial love, and embracing what Jesus set as the ideal find those sorts of things very inspiring. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he writes this, when he's speaking to the Christians, right? And he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with 
compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And then goes on, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's beautiful, don't you think? Would we be better off without the kind of Christianity that's characterized by that list? I really don't think so. When those who claim to follow Christ have been out of tune with him, there have been some really dreadful results. We have to recognize that. But when the tune has been played well, the positive contribution has been immense. I think shaping the world in profound ways and ways that we can all be glad of. Let's, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, not just his teaching and his words, but the way he lived that out in the most astonishing act of self-giving, self-emptying love. Not just for the people who loved him, but for his enemies and people who, who wanted nothing to do with him. And I th- thank you for that. And I thank you that uh, even though there are times, many times, where those of us who, have Christ- who are Christian have failed dr- miserably to live up to anything like that kind of standard, I thank you that there are those who have and that it's made a big difference to the world. May those of us who follow you be more and more people who put your radical love for other people into practice so that we're serving not just each other but serving the world around us. And give us strength to do that, we pray. Amen.